This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And all my Greek listeners, my Orthodox Christian friends, Christos Anasti, Christ is risen. Alithos Anasti, indeed he is risen. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Wow, can you still say that on the radio? Yes, you can. At least we can on this very program, unabashedly, unapologetically. Uh, got a good show for you tonight. But when do we not have a good show? <laughs> well, we are, of course, uh, continuing along, this being the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. You know, we, uh, we always say assassination, and, and uh, it's, it's one of those terms that it, it's very political, and we tend to lose sight of the fact that there was a murder actually committed on that day. We're talking about the murder of a human being, a father, a husband, not only the president. Sometimes, you know, we tend to um, lose perspective and we forget that. Uh, But, as I say, the 50th anniversary this year of the assassination of President Kennedy. And so we continue along in our ongoing series. And tonight, it's part three of JFK Connecting the Dots. And uh, I've really recruited one of the top guys for this series because... Very few things about JFK and the assassination uh, that he doesn't know. If there's someone who knows more, I'd like to meet him. Uh, James D. Eugenio is co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for the Truth About the Kennedy Assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations. He's co-editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of not only JFK, but MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X. And he is the author of the recently published second edition of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. James D. Eugenio, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Okay, fine. We should just do a very quick recap for those keeping uh, track at home. Uh, in, in part one of our ongoing series, you talked about the, uh, the rise of the national security state in the United States uh, before President Kennedy took office. So once he became president... This, of course, is, is uh, you know, the milieu that he found himself in. And we all remember, you know, uh, him talking about wanting to smash the CIA into a million pieces because he really got uh, 
a, an education, I guess while he was senator, touring around the world and finding out how this new national security state was really operating, the nefarious things that they were behind. Uh, in part two, we focused on Oswald's early years, first in the Marines, later being stationed at the Atsugi uh, Air Force Base in Japan as a, as a radar specialist, and then his, his um, defection to the Soviet Union under rather bizarre circumstances, and then his equally bizarre repatriation into the United States, uh, finding himself in Dallas. Tonight, uh, James, in part three, we're going to talk about Oswald in New Orleans, which is a very fascinating chapter. So let's begin. Before we get into actually his, his return to his, his birthplace in New Orleans in what was it, April of 63, we need to back up a little bit because, as you point out in Destiny Betrayed, one of the reasons that his, his wife uh, cited for them deciding to move there is kind of interesting. It had to do with an attempted assassination of General Edwin Walker. First of all, who was General Edwin Walker? Walker was a former uh, military man who had a kind of long and distinguished career. He was removed from his office for handing out uh, extreme right-wing literature um, to um, his troops, all right? Uh, He then went ahead and retired to private life, and he was living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area you know, at this time period. Uh, The previous year, he had been active in trying to obstruct Kennedy's attempts to get James Meredith into University of Mississippi. Okay? Now, let me add here. Although the Warren Commission says that Oswald uh, went ahead and took a shot at Walker, okay, In my book, I argue that nobody really knows why the Oswalds moved into New Orleans at this time because I believe the case of the Warren Commission has against Oswald for taking a shot at Walker is as weak as other cases against Oswald. That is, in the Tippett shooting and in the Kennedy shooting. Now, why, why do I say that? Well... Very few people know that in the entire eight months that the Dallas police investigated the Walker shooting, Oswald was never a suspect. He only became a suspect once the FBI came into the case uh, at the behest of the Warren Commission. All right? So for eight months... Oswald's name didn't even come up, okay, for the for, for the Walker shooting. Now, there's a couple other problems with the case against Oswald. Number one, if you look at the Dallas police records, um, the bullet that was in evidence does not match, okay, the uh, rifle that Oswald was supposed to have, okay, and as I've discussed with you, although I don't think we've discussed on this show yet, you know, I have really some serious problems about the whole Manicure Carcano issue. 
you know, whether or not Oswald ordered that rifle in the first place. All right. Yeah, I think, we, and we can dedicate an entire show, and maybe we yeah, will to yeah. that. Well, you really could. You probably yes. could. Yeah. Well, all we'll right. do that. All right. Now, now, on top of all this, the one witness that the police had that was a good witness. All right, um, a young kid, I think, was fifteen years old. Um, identified two men escaping from the scene that night, and neither one of them was Oswald. Okay, because Oswald couldn't drive. At least he believed the Warren Commission he couldn't drive. All right. So I have I have a lot of problems with the case against Oswald, you know, for the Walker shooting. I don't I don't think it's very strong. So in my opinion, um the re if I had to speculate as to a reason as to why the Oswalds moved to New Orleans in the spring of nineteen sixty three in my opinion, it was because Oswald was ordered there to join up with the uh, the CIA FBI Anti Fair Play for Cuba Committee campaign, which he was shortly going to be a part of. Right, but yeah. but just to, just to back up and we'll just one more point on on uh, General Walker. If you're trying to build this case that Oswald is this commie simp. Then you know it makes perfect sense that you'd write, that you would try to hang this this uh, attempted assassination of an extreme right wing, you know, hawk on 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 mm-hmm. Oswald. That makes sense, right? Right. So, and as you say, that didn't come out, you know, until after Oswald was dead. Uh, that Marina said, "Well, that was the reason we moved to Dallas." But you're saying it had more to do with the right. fact that he was, in fact, as we'll discuss further in this hour, a CIA operative, an asset. Uh, an agent provocateur. So April of 1963, they moved to New Orleans. At what point does Oswald become involved uh, or begin, you know, distributing pamphlets on the street on behalf of Fair Play for Cuba? Well, the first, as John Newman has noted, there's two phases to Oswald in New Orleans. There's the undercover phase, okay, in which... Oswald doesn't have a high profile. And then, excuse me, and then there's the overt phase where Oswald really begins to attract a lot of public attention by this leafleting, okay, on, on these main streets in front of these big landmarks like the International Trademark, okay. Uh, and that comes a little bit later, okay, in the summer, okay. But in the first couple of months, um, you know, April and May, you know, first part of June. Oswald does most of this stuff undercover because there's these leaflets found at certain colleges, okay, uh, like like Tulane, all right, um, and they they go and they go back to you know Oswald's uh, PO box, okay. So the first part of that is kind of low profile. Then in the summer, okay, in the summer, the middle of the summer, it starts to get you know, really kind of, of overt. Now, before we talk about that, though, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the whole um, menagerie, you know, at 544 Camp Street. Yes, this, which, is, if, this is fascinating. Course, is, a, is a real key to, well, if you ask me, it might be the most important thing about the whole New Orleans thing is the fact that Oswald's Flyers 
had that address on them. Okay, and yet to understand why that was so bizarre. Okay, you just have to understand what the heck was going on. You know, at 544 Camp Street. Okay, you had an assortment of these extreme right-wing zealots. Okay, who inhabited that building? You know, people like Delphine Roberts, who was very, very conservative. You know, and she was like one of these daughter of the American Revolution types. All right, you know, uh, you know, she was. She didn't even like, you know, public schools. Okay, yeah. So, so you know, and and she was uh, when Guy Bannister met her, she had a booth down there in Canal Street saying that the uh, the public buildings didn't honor the American flag enough. You know, so that's how conservative she was, right? Then, of course, you have the guy who I just mentioned, Guy Bannister, you know, who is a very, very right-wing kind of a guy who worked for the Federal Bureau of Investigation for a long period of time, for about 20-some years, all right? Then moved to New Orleans and was working as a kind of ombudsman for the police department there, got into some trouble, and then essentially kind of became a, um, a bagman for both the CIA and the FBI, doing a lot of undercover work for them under the guise of having a private investigator office, except Bannister didn't do any private investigating. There were these other guys there to do it, you know, like people, you know, like um, uh, Jack Martin, and Joe Oster and things like that. James, let you me know, just uh, let me just jump in here. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll return to 544 Camp Street in New Orleans as we discuss Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, our third in an ongoing series, JFK Connecting the Dots, with researcher James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Just listening to those words from President Kennedy, those who would seize upon the need for greater, cons- uh, greater security. Boy, that really rings true today, doesn't it? James Eugenio is with us as we continue our ongoing series on the assassination of Kennedy, uh, JFK, in this, our, in, in this the 50th anniversary. Uh, his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, tonight, Chapter 3. We're talking about Oswald in New Orleans. And so this is interesting. We're, we're, we're being asked to believe that, that Oswald is sort of running the New Orleans chapter of Fair Play for Cuba Committee, which is this activist group that's set up in, I guess, in New York back in 1960. A lot of interesting members of that, uh, of that uh, group. You had, you had people like uh, Truman Capote and Norman Mailer, uh, the great author James Baldwin, uh, uh, Lawrence Ferenge- Ferlinghetti. So here he is distributing uh, pamphlets in New Orleans on behalf of Fair Play for Cuba. On the back of these flyers is stamped the address 544 Camp Street, and this is where uh, Bannister is, as you point out in your book, running a clearinghouse for anti-Castro Cubans involved in Mongoose, and this was the, the, the ongoing operation to try and assassinate Castro. We're being asked to believe that Oswald is running you know, Fair Play for Cuba out of the same offices as Bannister, and they don't, they don't know that each other exists. Right. Pretty bizarre. Uh, Let me correct something for the record. Mongoose was not meant to assassinate Castro. It was meant to try and overthrow his his government. Okay. The the CIA, on its own, was trying to assassinate Castro, and that was deliberately kept 
from, from, from the Kennedys. But your general point is correct. The Bay of Pigs and Mongoose were run in New Orleans in large part out of Guy Bannister's office. You know, there was a constant flow, you know, of Cuban exiles and weaponry, you know, going in and out of there, all right? So what on earth is this pro-Castro guy, you know, working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, doing in Guy Bannister's office with these other people? Now, in my book, since I believe this is a very crucial point, you know, I count about 13 witnesses, okay, who in the declassified files, all, you know, who one way or another confirm that Oswald was there. You know, the other side, of course, has done everything they could to keep him out of Bannister's office because they know, you know, if, if Oswald is there doing the things that it appears he was doing, they have a really serious problem. Who the heck was this guy? You know, and so my argument is I believe that Oswald was there to go ahead and do this anti-Fair Play for Cuba committee stuff because the CIA and the FBI really did not like the things that the Fair Play for Cuba committee was doing. And in one of the declassified files from the CIA, what is so interesting of this is that the two guys running the anti-FPCC campaign out of the CIA headquarters were David Phillips and Jim McCord. That's very, very interesting. Explain who David Phillips right. is. Well, David Phillips at this particular time was a mid-level operations officer who was running um, a lot of the anti-Cuban stuff you know, for the Central Intelligence Agency. And he would fly around from Mexico City to Langley to JM Wave in Miami, supervising a lot of these anti-Castro you know, operations. Him and Howard Hunt had been friends going all the way back to the 1954 operation to overthrow our bands in Guatemala. And they had both worked together also on the Bay of Pigs operation, all right? And both men really despised Kennedy, you know, for a lot of different reasons. You know, one of them was that it looked like Kennedy was uh, winding down the crusade against Cuba at this particular time, okay? Now, Phillips is a very suspicious character for a lot of different reasons, but his name pops up in this saga in so many different places at so many different times. You know, for example, in addition to running the anti-FPCC campaign for the CIA, you know, Antonio Vesciana, who was one of his guys in Alpha 66, um, would later say that he saw Phillips with Oswald in Dallas, the Southland Center, in I think it was August of 1963, all right? You know, then, of course, you have Phillips down in Mexico City doing these rather suspicious things with the Oswald record, you know, down there, which we, we haven't talked about. I imagine we're going to talk about that in the future, because that's a key, very key point, you know, in, in my book is the whole Mexico City thing, you know. And then, again, as I describe in my book, 
it appears that Phillips is is in New Orleans running this telethon with guys like um, Sir Yurikachi Smith and Ed Butler and Gordon Novell to raise money for the Cuban exiles, you know, in the New Orleans area. So he's a guy who just keeps on coming up in this story, and I culminate in my book with um, the phone call between him and his brother. You know, when Phillips, in the, in the late 80s, when Phillips is dying, you know, and his brother, you know, and he had this final conversation, and he, his brother asked him, were you in Dallas that day? And Phillips is kind of sobbing, and he admits that he was. You know, so here's a guy who was maybe running Oswald in New Orleans in the summer of 63. Then he's in Mexico City, you know, with this uh, cover story about Oswald being in Mexico City. And then he's in Dallas on the day of the assassination. I don't know how you can get more suspicious than that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you, you mentioned the other one, uh, uh, aside from David Attlee Phillips, was uh, James McCord. Oh, Jim McCord, of course. McCord, everybody knows him. Because from the Watergate, McCord, yeah. McCord, of course, was the guy involved in the break-in at the Watergate Hotel a few years down the line, all right, you know, along with Hunt, you know, with about five other Cubans with them, all right? So McCord, of course, was a, an upper-level operator, in the CIA for a long period of time, who was very close to Richard Helms, right? And, you know, if you follow McCord's career, he's a dyed-in-the-wool CIA loyalist, okay? You know, and um, he wrote that famous letter to Judge Zerica. Oh, no, it wasn't to Judge Zerica, some guy in the White House, saying, you know, if, if Nixon fires Helms, you know, every tree in the forest will fall, which is exactly what he did, by the way. Okay, and so, and so, you know, McCord and Phillips, you know, are, are very staunch, died in the wool, you know. Uh, so it, it would make sense that they would be running this FPCC campaign, especially since Phillips is a propaganda expert, McCord is a security expert, and they were raiding the office of the New York Fair Play for Cuba Committee, you know, and, and their other offices throughout the country to get names of the people who are on these committees. Now, there was no need to do that in New Orleans because the only member was Oswald, okay? So the question then becomes, you know, what communist in his right mind would open up a fair play for Cuba committee in New Orleans at this time period? You know, very conservative city. Right. Outside of Miami... It has the highest population of Cuban exiles, you know, in the whole southwest, cor- southeast corner. You know, so it's very, very bizarre, the whole creation of this Fair Play for Cuba committee, especially if it's being run out of Bannister's office, which it appears to have been. Indeed. You mentioned uh, in an early conversation we'd had that if, in fact, uh, uh, Oswald was interested in, you know, properly... Uh, distributing these pamphlets, uh, if he was actually doing his job correctly, he never would have done a lot of the things he did. Uh, expound on that a little bit. Well, look, having I have talked to some communists at that who were communists at that time period, all right, and they would tell me 
look, we knew Oswald was not a communist because everything he did was wrong. You know, we understood the way he went about doing these things. And he wasn't doing them the correct way. You know, because when you're in a position like that in a conservative city like New Orleans with this high concentration of Cuban exiles, you don't put out this high profile. You want to keep a rather low profile, all right? You don't want to be so overt. And when you do this leafleting, you don't do it in the broad daylight in the afternoon on the busiest street in town. You know, you do it, you know, in the evening, okay, under cover of darkness, and you leave these flyers, okay, not in somebody's hand where everybody around them can see, but you might leave them like in a foyer at an apartment house or slide it under a doorway so that the stigma attached, you know, with looking at one of these things is not shared with other people, all right? So what these people told me, you know, like, look, we knew Oswald wasn't a communist just from that. You know, and then, there, of course, there was a report by the head of the Communist Party in Texas, I think his name was Stanford, you know, who, to the F, who said to the FBI, you know, Oswald wasn't a communist. Oswald was a CIA agent, okay? And by the way, that's exactly what Castro said 24 hours after the assassination, right? Uh, in 24 hours, the, Castro understood that Oswald was probably either an FBI or a CIA double agent just from the profile he was doing, because he understood also that what he was doing was completely out of character, you know, for a, a communist guy in a, in, in, in a city like that, you know. So those are some of the things, you know, that I think should have been more evident, you know, even at the time. But see, what Oswald didn't understand, of course he didn't understand, is that this, there was an end game to all this. There was an end result, which he did not foresee. Okay, and the end result was that on the day of the assassination, all these clips and pictures and films of him doing this stuff in New Orleans was going to be immediately injected into the media. For example, him posing in uh, Ruth Payne's backyard with the... Uh the um, the pro Cuba pro Castro well, literature. No, 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 not just that, but there were actually films of him and pictures of him doing the leafleting in New Orleans. So this picture that the public had was of a genuine communist. Okay, that right, was the immediate right. reaction to these pictures being and these films being taken. You know, while he was in New Orleans. Now you might want to ask yourself. Uh, why the heck would anybody want to take a film, you know, of this lonely guy? Well, one of the reasons is is that Oswald went ahead and did these things in these very overt places, like in front of Clay Shaw's International Trademark, okay, which was a kind of landmark kind of uh, uh, at that time, you know. And so there were naturally going to be pic- people taking pictures and maybe even films, you know, you know, of other people being in front of that building. He had newly constructed it, okay? And so, so what happened is this stuff now gets into the, into the 
you know, the 24-hour news cycle once Kennedy is killed. And so everyone now has this image of Oswald, this lonely guy in New Orleans, you know, trying to drum up sympathy for Fidel Castro. It was a terrific subliminal image, you know, for them to put out there. Sure, sure. Because it, it did both things. It pictured him as an offbeat loner type, and second, as a communist sympathizer type. Okay, and this, well, of course, th those are the two themes that the Warren Commission will use as his motivation for killing Kennedy. And meanwhile, he was just there uh, as a CIA asset, as an agent provocateur, told to infiltrate this Fair Play for Cuba committee and, you know, destroy their image. Uh, we'll yes. come back with James D. Eugenio, author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. We'll, we'll get into how in August of 1963, Oswald appear, appears to, uh, you know, reach out to some of the anti-Castro Cubans. This leads to a, a street fight, some bizarre appearances on, uh, on a radio station in New Orleans, and a, uh, uh, an imprisonment, a brief imprisonment for Oswald, and a bizarre interview with uh, an FBI agent. We'll get into all of that as we con uh, continue with our third installment of Connecting the Dots, JFK Assassination, with James DiEugenio right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Tonight, Episode 3 of our ongoing series on the assassination of JFK, and this the 50th year since the uh, the tragic events in Dealey Plaza. James DiEugenio is with us, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, and we're talking about Oswald in New Orleans. Uh, now, in August, it's, it's kind of, this is kind of an interesting chapter here. Why does Oswald at this point then seemingly reach out to some anti-Castro group. group. Uh, I think they were called the Student Revolutionary Directorate. He reaches out to these, uh, these individuals in New Orleans and says, I'd like to, to join your fight against Castro. What's he, what's he up to? Well, this, of course, is one of the most fascinating parts of, of the whole story. This is called the DRE, the Directory Studente, you know, Estudante Revolution. Okay, you know, and... It was being run by, if you listen to Howard Hunt, it was being run by Davis Phillips, okay? It was supposed to be his group, all right? And also it was being subsidized by Claire Booth Luce, the wife of Henry Luce of Time Magazine, all right? Now, Oswald reportedly uh, first approaches him saying that he wants to help them and help, you know, train them and do drills with them, et cetera, okay? In other words, pretending that he's supposed to be an anti-Castro, you know, sympathizer, all right? Then, of course, the next step is that he then goes ahead and starts leafleting on one of these busy streets. The word gets back to Carlos Bringier who was a guy he was talking to just a day or two earlier. And they have this altercation. All right? Now, if you follow this altercation, it's very bizarre because although Oswald's the guy getting punched, he's the guy who pays the fine. Bring the A gets off, okay? 
And so, of course, it's Oswald's name, you know, that goes ahead and gets in all the papers and gets circulated. All right? Now, I should say one more thing. Before the court appearance, Oswald was arrested. And as you mentioned, he's in jail for a short time. Now, think think of the absurdity of this. If Oswald is really working for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, right, why on earth would you call the Federal Bureau of Investigation to come down and interview you if you're in the FPCC? I mean, isn't those, aren't those the last guys you want to talk to? Exactly. So before leaving the police station, that's what Oswald asks to do. Let me speak to an FBI right. agent. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, most people you know, who knew anything about the way these things worked would say, well, obviously Oswald's some kind of informant. I mean, if that's what he does, if he gets arrested working for the FPCC and his first action once he's in jail is to call the FBI, and the FBI comes down, you know, and according to the latest research, Oswald specifically requested Warren DeBreeze, all right? And the young man working the FBI desk that night, a kid named William Walter, he's not a kid anymore, of course, but he said that he went over to the files, okay, and looked up and found that Oswald had a file there with DeBreeze's name on it, okay? But DeBreeze wasn't there, wasn't in the office. So a different guy named James Quigley goes down to interview Oswald. Now, very hard to determine how long the interview lasted. But most people believe that it was at least an hour and a half, okay? Maybe as long as two. And you have to ask yourself, if, if Castro, or, or sorry, if Oswald wasn't uh, working with the FBI at some, in some capacity, you know, why would the FBI send an agent down to, to speak to some individual that was involved in a minor you know, fracas on the street right. and then spend an hour and a half with him? And stay that long. You know, what would be the point of, of staying that long? What would, you know, unless, of course, Oswald was actually briefing Quigley on what he was doing there. You know, the whole thing. Did Quigley take notes? Uh, well, he did, but the first batch were torn up. How convenient. So we only have his second, his second, his second version of the notes. All right, uh, hold okay. on, James. We'll take another time out. We'll come back. We'll uh, delve further into the FBI interview with Oswald as he's sitting in uh, a police station in New Orleans. And then we'll get on to these strange radio broadcasts Oswald was involved with as we continue on in our uh, ongoing series, JFK Connecting the Dots with James DiEugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and The Garrison Case, right here on The Conspiracy Show. And just a, a programming note, James DiEugenio will be with us again next week for... Uh, episode 4 or installment 4 of our ongoing series on JFK. Uh, right now, it's Oswald in New Orleans. So uh, tell me about Oswald's appearance on uh, this radio uh, program in New Orleans called Latin Listening Post. It was uh, hosted by a guy named William Stuckey. What was, what was the purpose of Oswald getting on that program? 
Well, ostensibly, the idea was that they were going to debate the merits of the two different systems, okay? The Marxist system and the free enterprise system, okay? Or democratic system, what do you want to call it? All right. Um, what happened, though, and I think this was on the second show, not the first show, because Oswald came back for another show, um, is that somehow the people who were debating Oswald, which was Bringier, Ed Butler, and, um, as you said, a guy named Stuckey, Bill Stuckey, um, they found out that Oswald had been a defector. All right? So this, of course, made Oswald look kind of bad because, you know, it's one thing for an American to say, let's be nice to Castro. But it's another thing for a guy who's already defected the Soviet Union. I mean, you start looking, you know, like you're a real ideological, you know, um, nut, okay? And so now let me say something about the show the Stuckey show. Once Oswald was exposed, okay, he tried to say that um, while I was in the Soviet Union, I was under the protection of the State Department. He slipped up. Okay, in other words, he slipped up. He caught himself. And he said, I was not under the protection of the State Department. But here's the problem. When you look for the transcript of the radio broadcast, there's no flub up. In other words, they cut that part out. Okay? You know, so nobody would see that Oswald had, you know, slipped up there and made a mistake. All right? So that's the Warren Commission for you. Okay? They never made a mistake that helped Oswald. Every single mistake was always to hurt the case, you know, to hurt, to hurt Oswald's image. Now, when Oswald was on this radio program, again, espousing the, uh, uh, you know, the, the... We're getting into late summer now. Right, right. But he's, okay, he's yeah. on there debating, and he's basically pro-Castro, uh, and he's, he's debating these anti-Castro uh, Latinos in New Orleans. Was he not right. being sort of shepherded around by CIA? Was it Phillips that, that went with him to the radio station? Or who was shepherding? No, no, no. no? It, 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 wasn't, it, it wasn't Phillips. Okay, I think in this instance... Um, I think it was Butler. Stuckey had heard about the incident, okay, the host of the show. All right, he had heard about the incident, okay. So he is actually the guy who gets in contact with Oswald. But Stuckey knew both Butler and Ringier, okay. And so he arranged to have those two guys there. Now, Butler... Butler had some connections in Washington, all right, with the Senate Committee, you know, on um, on intelligence, which at that time was sort of like the equivalent of the House on American Activities Committee. A bunch of right wingers were on that committee, all right, and so he's the one who found out about Oswald uh, defecting the Soviet Union, 
I mean, it wasn't that hard to find out because there were a couple of newspaper stories about it. But that's how he got the information. That's how that... Now, later, of course, it turns out that Butler worked for Inca, the Information Council of the Americas, which we now know was very much heavily uh, involved with the CIA. Okay? So... If you add on to the fact that Bringier was with the DRE, you know, Butler was working for Inca, and Stuckey was an FBI informant, well, it starts to look kind of fishy, you know, <laughs> to, to say the least. Right, right. That's for sure. Uh, we have uh, about seven, about seven, eight minutes left, James, and I just wanted to, to touch on, if we could, uh, about David Ferry. Now, it's alleged that Ferry, David Ferry, was involved in the assassination. Perhaps he was the, the getaway pilot, uh, and that he had known Oswald back in the day when Oswald uh, and he were both members of the Civil Aviation Patrol. What can you tell me about, about David Ferry? Well, Ferry, of course, was one of the most interesting people, you know, involved in in the whole Kennedy case. All right, um, a genuinely very bright guy, you know, who um, had a very um, kind of uh, curiosity about a lot of different disciplines, you know, who then plagued by this disease, you know, where which made his hair fall out, you know. Plus, the problem he had at that time with his homosexuality, you know, which was not accepted, you know, back there in the late 50s, early 60s, you know, um, eventually lost his, his job, which was he was a, supposed to be a very good pilot, you know, and um, then began to kind of go downhill, you know, after that. Now, in addition to that, his qualities as a human being... There's also an association with Oswald, which um, many people think was a very crucial event in Oswald's life, because Ferry had a history of recruiting young men you know, who did not have the best family backgrounds, which Oswald certainly didn't have, you know, and going ahead and getting him somehow in the military. And in fact, Oswald did try and get into the uh, army. Uh, excuse me, the Marines earlier than his age allowed. Some people think it was actually very urgent to do this, right? And so then, of course, um, Oswald did get into the Marines, and he went into this intelligence work, okay, which, you know, Ferry was also instrumental in, in that, recruiting them in for intelligence purposes. You know, Ferry then in... 61 is involved in the Bay of Pigs, and 62 is involved in training for mongoose, you know. And then, of course, there is the very curious events of 1963, which really seem to indicate that Ferry and Bannister, and to a lesser extent Clay Shaw, were somehow involved in the maneuvering of Oswald in order to frame him for the Kennedy assassination. Now, did they know that they were doing that? I'm, I'm not really sure on that point. You know, did they know that in advance? You know, um, it's something that's kind of, you know, unknowable. But Ferry did some very odd things after the assassination. 
You want to talk about those? Yes, let's. We have a few minutes. Let's do that. Okay. All right. For instance, he started calling up all the people in the Civil Air Patrol and asking if there was any pictures of him with Oswald that they had. Okay. And um, then he tried to find if anybody had his library card. Okay. You know, because he, he was worried that he had lent it to Oswald that summer. Okay. You know, and he is clearly trying to go ahead and eliminate any evidence that would link him to Oswald. Now, when Garrison has him under arrest, it questions him. And he comes up with these bizarre answers about, you know, well, we're going ice skating. Okay. We're going ice skating in Texas. (laughs) Sure, why not? uh, We're going goose hunting, you know. And Garrison says, wait a minute, you're telling me you drove four hours through one of the worst thunderstorms of the year to go ice skating and goose hunting, and you forgot your shotguns? You know? And so he turns them over to the FBI, you know, which was a bad mistake, because Ferry lied throughout his FBI interview. You know? He said things like uh, he had never... Uh, he handled a scoped rifle, and he even said that uh, he had never instructed anybody, you know, to handle weapons, which, of course, was a bunch of baloney because he was involved in the training for both the Bay of Pigs, you know, and Mongoose, okay? He said he didn't know Oswald. He said he never instructed Oswald, you know, in the Civil Air Patrol, which is another lie, okay? You know, now, what's important to remember about this is that it's a federal statute that it's a crime to lie to an FBI agent, okay? If you get caught lying to an FBI agent, you know, it's the same thing as committing perjury, you know? Well, Ferry was not only lying, he was also attempting to obstruct justice by getting rid of this evidence that was going to connect him with Oswald. So in my book, I say... If anybody wants to know if J. Edgar Hoover had any interest in solving the Kennedy case, you know, the answer is no, because he could have had Ferry under arrest, you know, right then and there for lying in this FBI interview, you know, a couple of days after the assassination. So the guy was a prime suspect just off that FBI interview, you know, because you want to know, like, you know, what, you know, People don't like being indicted for perjury. Why are you lying? Okay. So that's obviously the question that we'll never have fully answered because, like I said in the book, Hoover didn't, wasn't interested in who had killed Kennedy. No, was, At no. that point, he was only interested in framing Oswald. Fascinating chapter. Just to, just to, um, to, to sort of wrap this up, it's, it's also interesting to note we mentioned we've been talking about Guy Bannister, and, and you mentioned one of his investigators, Jack Martin. And there's that story that at the uh, that was the afternoon of the assassination, November 22nd, 63, Martin talked about being in a bar drinking with Bannister. They got into some dispute. Bannister uh, accused Martin of stealing some of his files. And again, uh, Bannister had a horrible temper. He starts pistol whipping Martin with his 357 Magnum. And Martin says to Bannister something like, what are you going to do to me? 
kill Kennedy? Like, or kill, what are you going to do to me? Uh, do the same thing uh, like you know you killed Kennedy, right? You're going to do the same thing to me as you did to Kennedy, right? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a true story. Okay, and I actually fill out that story a little bit in my book with the declassified files from uh, the House Select Committee. Delphine Roberts, in one of her interviews, the House Select Committee said that Martin was actually going for the Oswald files. And that's what, you know, because that's what, you know, if he just went into the files, you know, that wouldn't be so bad. But on that particular day, to go into the Oswald file, okay, that's what sent Bannister over the edge, okay? You know, because, of course, the last thing in the world Bannister wanted anybody to know was written evidence that he was associated with Oswald, you know, in the summer of 1963. And, in fact, I also write in the book, you know, when, when, when Bannister found out that Oswald had put 544 Camp Street on one of the flyers, he went into a rage. You know, he told a couple people who worked there, you know, oh, my God, what is this going to look like with my address on his goddamn flyers? You know? There you go. Listen, so James. Obviously, you know, Bannister probably called Oswald in and said, what the hell are you doing? You know, right after that. Yeah. All right. We will pick this up next week, uh, James. Thank you for this. Okay, Richard. James I'll talk to you next week, buddy. Righto. Bye-bye. Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard, friends. Glad to have you with us. Hope you'll be with us for the duration. Just opening my mail here. I only found the new mail room here on uh, Zoomerplex at 70 Jefferson in uh, Liberty Village, Toronto. 
wandering the halls, trying to figure out, where is the mail room? And I finally found it, and I love getting mail. One of the great things about doing this show is the kind of mail I get. I get the most interesting uh, emails and letters and, and packages, and I just opened uh, a package here that came from uh, Texas, and it's my good pal Nick Redfern, who's got another book out. This guy never sleeps. This one's called Monster Files, a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. So I'm looking forward to taking that home. Be a little... Uh, Nighttime reading for me, and we'll have to get Nick, Red, Nick Redfern back on the show uh, as soon as we possibly can. Monster Files. Looking forward to that one. And I'm looking forward to uh, the next hour as well. Ever since the Assyrians exiled the ten tribes of Israel in the 8th century BC, the mystery of what happened to them has deepened inexorably with time. Where did they go? Are the claims by contemporary groups who say they're descended from the lost tribes legitimate? Tonight, I welcome two researchers to discuss the identities and whereabouts of those lost tribes and how events currently being played out on the world stage as witnessed by today's headlines are a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Nelson Thal is an authority on Christian eschatology, a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of humankind, as foretold in the Bible. He was trained as a media scientist and has worked as a university lecturer, film, radio, and TV producer, researcher, director... He initially trained under Marshall McLuhan at the University of Toronto. He's a former president of the Marshall McLuhan Center on Global Communications and director of the Center for Media Sciences. He currently serves as researcher for the Conspiracy Show, the vision or the, the television program, that is, that you can see on Vision TV. And joining him is Ms. Jane Steele. She's a playwright, researcher, writer, James Joyce scholar and has produced and co-hosted the popular internet radio show Shock Talk with Bloom and Steele since 2008. Ms. Steele, Nelson Thal, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Great. Nelson? Yeah, very good, Richard. These are wonderful new uh, studios you have. Congratulations. It looks just beautiful. It's starting to feel like home. I absolutely love the new digs. It's great. Welcome. And it's great to be back. Good to have you back. Always been fascinated with uh, biblical prophecy, and uh, um, obviously, the uh, we've talked about this uh, an awful lot, Nelson, over the years off the air, but we've never had a discussion on the air, and we're going to do that tonight. And that is the uh, the lost tribes of Israel. We often hear about that. Let's just set the table. Who, when we talk about the tribes of Israel, wh- who are we talking about? Good question. Well, it's midnight. Uh, after midnight, the owners of the system have gone to sleep and the uh, uh, glass ceilings of free speech have evaporated and we can come out and play a little bit and talk about things like this. So it is exciting because it's not covered much and people aren't ta- – it's not talked about in the major media or even the minor media. And the idea of tribes and tribalisms and what a tribe is and sensing and feeling what a tribe is is something that is not elucidated or discussed or evoked by the major media as we know. And so this is a new topic for most people that were tribes. They often think of the Algonquin Indians or the Mohawks or – and that's fine. You should, should start to think about how tribes that we're going to talk about tonight take on the texture of extended families And the feelings that the tribes have like the Algonquin Indians, the Mohawks and the other native people tribes because the tribes of Israel, etc. are not much different in what they really are in essence as the extensions of families and patriarchs. 
Okay, so let's 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 run the, down the the list of the of the uh, the twelve, sometimes listed as thirteen tribes, and we'll we'll get into why there there's some discrepancy, twelve or thirteen. So, Miss Steele, who who were the the, uh, the the tribes of Israel? Okay, we're going to start with Ephraim, and that's uh, Britain. Well, no, before we get into who they who they who have they become, let's just na- oh. list the actual tribes of Israel. Okay. The actual tribes of Israel. So. Sure. Well, first of all, remember the tribes all began with the, the patriarch and his name was Abraham. And right. Abraham was not only the father of, of the uh, Jews but the Christians and the Muslims. All right. those three religious entities recognize him. So as the patriarch. So the tribal chief then the ultimate patriarch is Abraham and then came Isaac, his son, and then Jacob, uh, his uh, Isaac's son, and Jacob had 12 sons. And basically, Jacob inherited a tremendous amount of wealth and um, in his will, so to speak, passed it on to his 12 sons, of which one of them was Joseph. And he adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, so the 12 became 13. Ah, that's okay. So it's not that there's any discrepancy. It's just a matter of chronologically at what point you're talking, whether before Joseph had his children or after he had his children and his father passed away. Okay, so let's run down the the names of the the, uh, the 12 tribes. Well, we start off with Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, and Joseph. All right. Those are the twelve, the and, thirteen, and these are the, the, the 12, these were sorry. the the the, uh, the sons, and in 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 the case of Joseph, his two children, so the grandchildren and children. Ephraim and Manasseh became adopted by the father, so the twelve became thirteen right, of Jacob. Tribes. Jacob, who eventually, of course, was renamed Israel. Right now, at some point, Israel breaks. Uh, there's there's uh, there's two kingdoms. Right, and there's a span of time here. We're talking. Let's just talk about Jacob lived approximately uh, 1500 BC. Okay. Okay. So at 1000 BC, uh, just after the death of Solomon's son, the the tribes split up. Instead of being in one country, uh, twelve. In other words, twelve tribes in one country, what happens is they split into two countries with three of the tribes going to the south uh, in a country called Judah, J-U-D-A-H, capital Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom with ten tribes. In other words, the ten, ten brothers went north with their capital at Samaria. So you had ten in the north, three in the south, and the, the ten in the north eventually lost their identity and spread across Europe and uh, over the period of 2,520 years uh, coagulated at the end of 2,520 years into various nations that today we can identify them as being. Okay, so we're we're talking about the ten tribes. When we talk about the lost and found tribes. The tribe of Judah is not lost. Everybody knows where it is. Right, right. It's the other ten tribes. And so how did did that happen? How did they first... uh, sort of lose their identity or how did they get lost miss Steele? well assyria attacked israel and took them captive and that was in 721 bc or 722 bc it just depends i think it's just in that area there so they were taken captive by the assyrians and at that time they were taking the caucasus which is near the caspian sea 
And they started a wander from there, so they split up and went in many different directions. Okay. And that, that's Assyria, A-S-S. Assyria. Right. The Assyrian Empire, like Babylon, for example. Exactly. Which is modern-day Germany. That's where they moved to Germany after. Right. Which is Assyria. The mo- ancient Assyrians are today the modern-day Germans. Okay. The Germanic so, tribes ah, descend that's from where the they, Assyrians. I see. Okay, yes. So the ten lost tribes that were uh, – that comprised the state of the northern kingdom, rather, of Israel right. around 721, 722 BC. They're taken captive by the Assyrians. So then they escape, essentially, and – It's not that let, they escape, they let, but go. over a period of time, they were – initially, they were yeah. thrust out to the outer portions of the empire, namely the Caspian Sea area. Okay. And as Assyria, as a nation and as an empire started to wane, these – Tribes took off and started to head northwest and migrate northwest. Okay, so, Jane Steele, where did they go? Well, they ended up in many different places. And so it was the UK, uh, parts of Judah. And uh, so Ephraim basically ended up in Great Britain. So the the tribe of Ephraim. Mm Mm-hmm. They ended up in in England or Britannia. In the Isles. In the Isles. In the Isles. They headed for the Isles, which which is the British Isles. And so Ephraim today is Britain and – Okay, let's get into some of the others. So you've got Reuben. That's France, modern-day France. Uh, Simeon, the Celts and the uh, Jews. Levy. Levy scattered all over um, in many different cities. Well, and let me just say this, that Levy was not – promised by his father Jacob a nation, nationhood status. He lost the ability to have nationhood status, and he was scattered amongst his brothers. All right. Okay. Let's continue down the list, Miss Steele. So you've got... Issachar became Switzerland, Swiss, the Swiss Swiss and, and the Finns. Finns. And, uh, well, Yehuda or the... Well, do you want to go to Holland, yeah. which is... Zebulon. Yeah, let's go to Zebulon. Zebulon is Holland. Gad is Sweden. You've got Asher is the Scots. Benjamin is, uh, with the I Jews. guess, the Belgium and the Normans. Is with it the Jews. With the but Jews, too. Scattered. scattered. He didn't get his own. Yeah. Like Judah, he didn't get – like um, uh, Levi. Levi, he did not – was not bequeathed nationhood status. All right. Uh, Dan was became the Danes and the Celts and Naphtali, the Norwegians. All right. What about one? the New World? We missed the New World. Oh, we've got – okay, well, Manasseh became the USA and Ephraim became Britain. And also the Commonwealth countries um, are included with Ephraim and that's Canada, New Zealand. Australia. And Australia. So the ten tribes scattered mm-hmm. around the world and what, how, do we, how do you verify something like that? I mean we're talking we're, – we're going back you know, 700 BC. How do you, how do you verify – you Something know, like it, um, with some of them, for instance, with the Levites and the Kohanim, uh, DNA markers are able to be used. And more and more DNA markers are being used to verify Reuben and some of the major tribes. But there were other many other ways. For instance, uh, uh, culture scientists have been able to study the oral culture, music, musical instruments, coats of arms. For instance, with Ephraim, it's not difficult. You've got the Union Jack is their flag, Jacob. Uh, So the Union Jack, the the flag of of Great Britain, 
the jack. It's called Union the jack. Comes from Jacob. Exactly. So it's really their flag is really called Union Israel. Interesting. Well, because uh, now that you mentioned flags, up until the early seventies, the official flag of Northern Ireland. Uh, I, I recall, was this – it was a red hand inside the Star of David. Exactly. So that would lend credence to what you're saying. And that's another – and when you take a look at the, the coats of arms, the flags, the na- the national anthems of the countries, uh, cultural scientists use a number, more than two dozen different uh, criteria for studying the tribes as they were before – the breach before the split and modern day nations and language codes, etc. Right. Let me jump in here. We'll come yeah. back. We'll continue to delve into the lost and found tribes of Israel. Nelson Fall, media scientist, James Joyce scholar, Miss Jane Steele, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're discussing the identity of the 10 tribes of Israel, the so-called lost tribes of Israel. Of course, in the uh, 8th century BC, they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians and then History sort of loses track of the uh, these ten tribes. Uh, Nelson Thal, media scientist, Jane Steele, playwright, researcher, writer, uh, is uh, with us to discuss, to discuss, in fact, the uh, the whereabouts of the ten tribes. And uh, what we're discovering is that they essentially settled all over the world. Uh, the tribe of Manasseh, which was one of Joseph's sons, the tribe of Manasseh, uh, they ended up in North America, the New World, and Ephraim. Joseph's other son ended up in Great Britain. Uh, proof of, as, uh, as, as proof of this, you look at the Union Jack, uh, which is, in fact, the Jack in Union Jack stands for Jacob. So it's the Union of Israel, which is fascinating. We have uh, other indicators. The, 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 the flag of Northern Ireland was a red hand inside the Star of David. Now, uh, give us some other examples. You mentioned the, the, the Saxons. You know, if someone were to delve into this in depth, They'd find that there's a there's an undebatable amount of information on every one of these nations. So by just singling one or two out tonight, um, can is it's is it's not the one reason why these are the descendants. I understand, but we need some these examples. These are just exactly so for instance Saxons. Exactly. Isaac's sons speak are which where the word Saxon came from. Isaac's sons. Okay. The, the the word for the word in Yiddish for Jacob is Yankel. Well, you know, what the United States the Yankee Doodle, the Yanks. Right, right. This co- is That's more where it comes from. Comes from. So they are the children of Jacob. Also Bereth, Brith, um from Britain means covenant man. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, and and I guess the, 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 this is a big subject, but remember that there's there's the Abrahamic covenant the from covenant Abraham coming from Abraham. Abraham, right. that because he was prepared to sacrifice his son, he was promised that his children would inherit control of the sea gates of the world, which would give him control of the world. The, right. British, okay. the sun never set on the British Empire. There you go. So, but, but it seems when, like special status was given to Joseph's children, Manasseh and their tribes, jo- jo- Manasseh and Ephraim. And Manasseh becomes the United States, or they, they end up in the United States, and Ephraim ends up in, in Britain. These are two, obviously, right. powerful countries. Why did they get special 
um, the birthright bless the, the the total Abrahamic covenant blessing w- eventually split into two: one of race and one of grace. Judah's scepter, Joseph's birthright, and we'll get into. One was a spiritual blessing to go through the tribe of Judah, mm-hmm. and one was a material blessing to go through the tribe of Joseph. Uh, why was Joseph chosen in the Bible, and why extra uh, extra was given to Joseph? Because he became the ruler of Egypt, having gone from a slave, he was a special. Uh, he saved uh, Egypt, became the prime minister of Egypt as a result, and saved his family, as you recall the story. Right. So having been able to save his family, save the nation, he was given uh, the birthright blessing, which was originally promised and should have gone to Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn. But Reuben, we're told, lost that special status. He wasn't cut out of the will totally from the blessings, but he was no longer the – since he was the oldest of the males, it was should have naturally gone to him. But he lost it because he slept with his father's concubine. It's interesting that the man, Reuben, had a problem with uh, carnality, his sexuality. And, of course, today we have a nation that descends from him and has all those traits in France, which is – I mean the president of France is known to have a, con- a, a mistress. Right. And it, it doesn't it, – it, the people in the, are, are completely fine with it. That couldn't happen in other countries. So it's interesting to see how the traits of this man, of these brothers, thousands of years ago are carried down to their nations today. Now, uh, either one of you jump in here, but uh, the other interesting thing that was mentioned was that uh, uh, God made this uh, a promise that you know these blessings will be stowed upon you, but if you don't, you know, keep you, the covenant. If you don't keep the covenant, then Agreement. I may delay it. I might delay these blessings, and that figures large in history. Uh, explain that. Well, the the blessing was actually deferred. Um, Seven times seven, which is there's 360 days in a year at that time, times seven. There's a day for a year principle, which comes out to 2,520 years. So it somewhere in around 1800, in that time span, the blessing was actually given to Ephraim and Manasseh. Right on time. 722 BC yeah. plus the 2,520 years means that it, they uh, that Britain was uh open and now had the right to be given the promise was to that they would get that blessing 2520 years after going into captivity in 721 and all of a sudden out of the blue in 1800 AD Britain which was not a seafaring large nation or a worldwide power Spain Portugal and other nations were all of a sudden it maintains and controls the gates of the world, sea gates of the world, which is part of the blessing, part of the promise, right. and takes over and becomes a world power, the first truly worldwide power. Well, in Genesis forty-eight nineteen, Ephraim is to be a multitude of nations, which we can see with the Commonwealth nations ah, that right, are right. incorporated with Britain. You can see Australia, Canada, and Canada being a huge mineral wealthy nation also. 
And Manasseh was to be a great people. And you can see their military power, and they're very generous with other nations. I mean, if you think about the 19th century, both these countries had huge population explosions. They became very, very wealthy very quickly. So how and did this that all, happen? This is all predicted in the Old Testament. Sure. Well, both so the, the blessing was given to both of these countries, and you can certainly see that that is very true, that it actually happened. So, I mean, at the turn of the 19th century, England burst ahead of all the fellow nations, you know, in virtually every category, really. And that's America, too, you know, human, economic, military, and political endeavors. So, so this is a fulfillment a- of Abraham's, um, the promise of Abraham. The promise, the Abrahamic, the promise made to Abraham, and it's interesting to note that that promise was made approximately 1500 uh, BC. Um, that when Paul and when James wrote in the New Testament, his letter that's in the New Testament is addressed to the tribes of Israel scattered abroad, and he sent that letter. So, 1500 years after. After Abraham, Paul and James knew where these tribes were. Nelson Thal is with us, media scientist, Jane Steele, playwright, researcher, uh, co-host and producer of Shock Talk with Bloom and Steele, as we're discussing the lost and found tribes of Israel. Now, sitting back, I'm hearing this information. It's fascinating uh, to discover where these uh, ten tribes ended up. Uh, But the, the, the big question is then, okay, so... What does it matter? What is the significance of this? And, and where I'm going is, is I, I want to find out why this is important in terms of what's going on today in the headlines. Well, violence is a quest for identity, Marshall McLuhan said. And to the degree that identities are scrubbed off and lost, you'll become a more violent society. And so we do see a lot of violence in our society. And a lot of it is because we just don't no, the nations are not aware of their true identity. It's, and if you're not aware of your true identity, it's going to make it difficult to plan your future and to run your society in a calm and peaceful manner. And so we see a lot of these tribes that have lost their identity are very violent. Namely, Britain and America is very violent. And a number of the other ones are very violent because they've lost their identity. Well, over that time, they've been lost and gentilized. They've lost their identity, so they and they haven't really been following the covenant, have they? You know, I mean, there's a lot of idolatry and Sabbath breaking. Certainly. So that's all part of the covenant, and they certainly haven't been doing that. So the blessing is dissolving. It's being taken away. We can see it now. It's Jacob's trouble. So we've lo- Britain has lost. Britain has lost pretty well now. Most of the there's twelve or thirteen sea gates. They're mm-hmm. down to only Gibraltar and the Falklands. They just lost Panama recently, and I believe that Gibraltar might be taken away shortly. And once you, the importance of sea gates is through the control of the sea gates of the world, like the Panama Canal, the Cape of Good Hope, uh, South America, etc., the Malacca Strait. There's there's twelve to thirteen sea gates, major sea gates around the world. They were once controlled by Britain and America. Now they're down to approximately two left. And as they disappear, their ability to maintain control of the world and as we know, we admit now that Britain's empire has faded and America is 
going through the same steps Britain went through and its empire is about to f- collapse. So the, the story of the, of the ten tribes, the ten lost tribes of Israel is all our stories, our collective story. Mm-hmm. Your story, my story, yep. as Canadians, as Americans, as Britons. As, yeah, we're all part of, a, part of the lost ten tribes that received this birthright blessing, deferred. We were given it in the 1800s. It made for what we are today, the wealth, the power that we got. That all came because of Yahweh, Yahweh's uh, promise to Abraham. But now that promise is, uh, is being taken away. That wealth is being taken away because uh, uh, those nations are no longer living according to the covenant. So let's move forward then and let's look at the, the, the state of the world, which is quite frankly is a mess. I mean I happen to believe that we are on the precipice of a worldwide depression. Uh, despite what you hear in the mainstream news, there has been no real economic recovery. Uh, the United States, uh, the Federal Reserve is pumping $85 billion a month into the economy. People look at the stock market. It's, it appears to be rising and that's because corporations are laying people off and their bottom line looks good. Uh, but you know the the job the the the, the, uh, the unemployment rate in the United States is not good. Uh, it's underemployment, chronic underemployment. Um, do you see in in let's say let's look at the economy first of all. Do you see in what's going on in the economy around the world? Uh, do you see that foretold in biblical prophecy? The book of Daniel foretells it. Um, Daniel, uh, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the first uh, dictator of the world in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in interpreting his dream, um, made it clear that at the end time, there would be a, a last empire made up of ten toes, ten kings, ten kingdoms, five in the east, five in the west, and that they would rise and be the final kingdom before the second coming. And that was to be uh, a nation in in Europe, a United States of Europe, would rise up at the end time and be the final world power. Well, it did say it would also be miry clay, so not particularly Iron strong. and miry clay. Iron yeah. and miry clay. Um, so it'll be shifting a bit. But, I mean, that seems to be coming about. You've got a lot of power in the United uh, European States. I mean, you can almost see that coming together right now. And Britain is apart from that, isn't it? It isn't actually part of that whole union. Correct, right. It's staying separate. Now, in Deuteronomy um, 28.13, it talks about England being the head and not the tail. And that would be being the lender, not the borrower. And then later on it says that it will be reversed. Well, but obviously it starts to become the tail. So, But it doesn't mention England specifically in Deuteronomy. What does it call it? What does Deuteronomy um, refer to England as? Let me just see what it says. It is Israel. It's Israel. But it's referring to Britain. But Britain, but Israel. Okay, so that's part of the ten tribes. We're talking about the ten ten tribes here. So it's going to be reversed when they are disobedient and not really following the covenant laws. So we can see that happening now, both in Manasseh and Ephraim. All right, let's take a time out. The Lost and Found Tribes of Israel, Nelson Thal, Jane Steele, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Nelson Thal and Jane Steele in studio talking about the Lost and Found Tribes of Israel. And uh, I guess the takeaway from this is we are all the uh, the lost tribes of Israel. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize that there's only 70 tribes 
on the planet, of which 13 are the descendants of Abraham. Right. So when, 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 when you're looking at biblical prophecy in the Bible and when it talks about Israel— what is meant by Israel is not the modern state of Israel necessarily. It's, not it's the United States. It's Great Britain. It's France. Now, I want to go back to – we were talking about evidence that these lost tribes settled, settled in places like England. And so Ephraim is Great Britain. Uh, there's another interesting artifact in England most of us may not be aware of. And that is where the, the queen or the king is um, the- crowned. The throne of England. There's an interesting artifact that's part of that throne. It's called the Stone of Scone. What is that? Well, the old coronation chair, which is kept at Westminster Abbey in London, under which all the kings of Ireland, Scotland, and England have been coronated, have been crowned. The coronation chair is basically a chair built on top of the stone of scone so that the monarch is sitting on the stone of scone. If you go to Westminster Abbey, you'll see a sign and it says that the stone of scone is Jacob's pillar stone. So the throne of David is the English throne and the all the English monarchs have been crowned on the stone of Scone, and that's the pillar stone that Jacob had in the desert when he had his famous dream of the angels moving up and down to heaven, and he took that stone with him wherever he went, and it was where all the kings of Israel, the kings not of Judah, but the kings of Israel were crowned. Well, the king of Judah also was. Um, Certainly David's throne was on on that. So is further evidence then that that Ephraim uh, migrated to Great Britain, Jacob's pillar is now in England and it is basically part of the throne of England. It was Jacob's pillow when he had his uh, Jacob's ladder dream in, right. you know, in uh, Genesis. Now, the queen is directly relate, related to King David. She descends from the line of David. From the line of David. And um, so imagine you've got this stone under the coronation chair. I mean, that's, that's pretty big evidence, isn't it? And it's been moved around several times. So after 700 years... It's supposed to be returned to Scotland. That's where it's supposed to be right now. Yeah, it was moved this yeah. to Scotland. It was moved uh, to Scotland. Uh, uh, yeah. you and, we did a show on it, you and I. Yeah. Okay. What's the significance ago? of it moving from England to Scotland? Well, what's interesting is it went originally from King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. Uh, Jeremiah and the daughter, Tiatefi, brought the Stone of Scone to Ireland. In approximately uh, 585 BC, and then from Ireland, they all the kings. It stayed there about a, about a thousand years. All the kings of Ireland were crowned on it. Then it was moved to Scotland, and then it was moved back to to, to London. And scholars believe that the route it took coming from Jerusalem is the same route it will take back, because when. Uh, when Christ returns at the second coming, he will sit on that throne. So that throne will have to be brought back to Jerusalem. Other so things- the fact that it was moved in our era uh, a few months before the Lady Diana assassination yeah. was interesting that it, that it hadn't been moved for a thousand years before that. I want to go back to something else that, that, that uh, uh, I think you pointed out, Jane, and that is 
that we talked about the, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel being taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire, mm-hmm. the Babylonians, in 722 B.C. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that the Assyrians uh, would later become modern-day Germany. That's correct. Explain, because people are thinking, wait wait a minute, Assyria, I think of Assyria, that's uh, modern-day Iraq, uh, and Germany, of course, the center of Europe. So uh, I, I don't understand that discrepancy. Well, they moved into the area that is currently Germany, and that's where the Assyrians are right now. So that's where their tribe went. Okay, so they so relocated. So modern-day Germany is, is really of... ancient Assyria. Ah, okay. So there's some an, another interesting... Uh, aspect in the Bible that talks about the rod, God's rod, being used to, uh, you know, chastise Israel when they don't follow the covenant. Well, it happened before when they were taken into captivity by Assyria, and it probably will happen again. Duality of the Bible. There's a lot of duality, and you can really see the rise of Assyria, I mean, of Germany, modern-day Germany, right now before us in a very, very short time from World War II. And we've had two major wars, Britain and America, with Germany. So, I mean, that sort of gives you a historical feeling about... So God determined was determined to use Assyria as the rod yes. to chastise Israel. Mm-hmm. He did it in 721 with the Assyrian mm-hmm. Empire taking the, the ten tribes into captivity... Then he used the Germans, who were in fact the Assyrians, in two world wars. This time, though, when he's, chast- when he's using the Assyrians to chastise Israel, it's Germany versus England, France, Canada, the United States, the ten lost tribes of Israel. It's starting to make sense. <laughs> so what about um, the infiltration of the government in the USA? We'll, uh, talk it's about- been infiltrated. By the Assyrians. By the, By the uh, Assyrians. Waffen-SS. Do you want to call it that? All right. Let's take a time out. We'll come back. Nelson Thal, Jane Steele, the lost and found tribes of Israel. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. Nelson Thal remains in studio along with Jane Steele. We discuss, as we're discussing, the identity of the, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, the lost and found tribes of Israel. So, uh, again, it's important to reinforce that whenever the Bible, whenever prophecy talks about Israel. They're not talking about the modern state of Israel. They are talking about the ten tribes of Israel which were scattered around the world and settled in places like England, the United States, France. Not only settled, but uh, were inherited the nationhood status that they had been promised. Right. Okay, so I, w- I want to get into... In other words, they became nations. Ephraim became the nation right. of Britain. Right. Manasseh became the nation of America. I want to get into, into end times uh, yeah. prophecy. Uh, let's start with a definition. What is, one of the, the terms that is often associated with the beginning of the end times is Jacob's troubles. What does, what does that mean? That comes out of Jeremiah 30, and basically it's a time of trouble on the nations of Judah and Israel. So in other words... Not just the ten lost tribes, but the thirteen tribes, the house right. of Judah and the house of Israel. And it's because of their covenant breaking, they're to go once again into captivity and be disciplined and punished severely by going into slavery once again like they were in Egypt. But again, when when we're talking about the, the tribes of Israel, we're not talking about necessarily the modern state of Israel. We're talking about... Canada, the United States, England, 
right. France, Netherlands, et cetera, et cetera. All the the the, All the, of the, the tribes. The 13 that we tribes. Right. The 13 tribes. Jacob's trouble is on the 13 tribes to come down on all 13 tribes and their nations. So when is this to begin or, or are well, we in fact – Well, it's beginning indica- now. Look at it. Look what's happening in the United States. I mean they've got martial law about the – they're all worried about martial law and and the, the fascism that's moving in the United States. Well, and, you've got the gun tr- control. You've got weather conditions that are just – The camps – you know, we've never seen that type of a catastrophic weather conditions that we have around the world. Well, what is, you know, the droughts, it, the floods, the hurricanes, the – I mean, we've just got everything going on. We've got uh, – the economic growth is almost stopped. Unemployment, small businesses closing down. But, but people terrible. could say that we've seen this before. Uh, we had the dirty 30s and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what – well, after 200 years, 250 years of having been given the blessing, it's not going to – it's going to be taken away not overnight. It's going to be taken over a period of, of years and certainly um, after 250 years from 1800 through to the end of the, the 20th century, um, the birthright blessing has slowly been taken away more by more by more and uh, it caused – Two world wars, as mm-hmm. as Germany was being used to discipline uh, the British and American peoples, and uh, it continues today. And all these uh, events are forecasted in in the Book of Deuteronomy. You know, I think we can also talk about Jacob's trouble as not necessarily being totally negative, because I mean. It's going to be a very severe time. But they shall be saved out but of they, it. I, so I, I want to sort of um, give a little bit of a positive note in there. Yeah. So, you know, just to not make it seem so horrible, because Jacob's trouble will last for 1,260 days. So about three and, and a half years. Exactly. That's during the last half of the tribulation. That's after all of these events have taken place. It's going to be really, really tough. But... You know, there's going to be a time when everybody will be saved out of it. So there's good news. No, but a halfway, there has to be good news. Yes, absolutely. But halfway through the Jacob's Troubles, three and a half years in, we have mm-hmm. the emergence of this Antichrist right. figure. So that's the cancellation of the peace treaty, the seven-year peace well, treaty canceled halfway well, we have through. To, right. The Holy Temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And uh, what's going to happen the there holies, is, I the mean, there's going to be a sacrifice. The sacrifices and, will, con- will yep. begin again in these, Jerusalem. These are signs of the emergence of this Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the building of the Third Temple, of course, the Second Temple Britain was destroyed in 1870. Britain and America will go into captivity. Britain and America will go into captivity. Exactly. They'll disappear. That's right. Europe will become a world. Europe will be the new world power. The mm-hmm. Caesar will rise again. And the, we'll Ro- have- the Holy Roman Empire is rising and taking down the House of Judah and the House of Israel. But when one looks at the situation in Europe, I mean, Mike, they're a basket case in terms of their their their, their economies and so forth. Well, the, there are people the talking about the European is- Union breaking up, and you're well, saying that they're going to emerge even stronger. Prophecy says they're going to become very strong and eventually form a superpower nation with what's called the King of the North. Mm-hmm. And all that will be left on the face of geopolitics on the world scale will be the king of the north versus the king of the south. And those are in relationship to Jerusalem. Well, they'll be divided up into ten kings also. So when you're saying the countries appear to be falling apart, 
they will actually be made of maybe kingdoms. Kingdoms, right? Like so areas, larger disappear. areas. Yes. The nations can disappear, but the kingdoms will rise in power once again. We're really in Canada a kingdom. We're a mm-hmm. colony of Great Brit- of Britain, and the head of state here is the British Queen, the Queen of Canada. So we're really a monarch, a parliamentary monarch. Our monarchy is not going to be powerful. We're on the wane, as we can see. Right, right. But, but the other kingdoms of Europe, the monarchies of Europe, are growing in power. And remember, the power is the ability to remain invisible. The more visible you are in the media as a monarch, the, the weaker you are. The, more, the most powerful monarch is King Juan Carlos. If his kids go to Las Vegas, you aren't going to read about it. Okay, so we have the, the uh, emergence of this Antichrist figure. When is he going to make his uh, appearance on the world stage? And, and, and in, from what area will he come from in terms of background? Will he be uh, a politician? Will he be uh, um, you know, a member of the United Nations? Will he be uh, uh, one of the crown, crown princes of Europe? Where will he come from? Well, you know, what happens is very, very clear, and that is we have the rise of a Caesar once again. Remember the old Holy Roman Empire, not the new one, the old Roman Empire. What happened is you had the Caesar claiming to be God. And Daniel's dream says we're going to have a last world empire. And with that world empire, the new Holy Roman Empire, you're going to have a Caesar emerge and a false prophet. And when when Rome fell, the office of the Caesar went into the papacy and became the papacy. And the papacy is the ruler and the representative of the god of this world. So – do you believe then that the Antichrist will – will he be a, a, a politician? Will well, he be – Prophecy isn't right clear. It, it isn't totally clear. clear. They don't, it doesn't say w- what his profession will be. But when he rises, you'll know it. So we don't know what career he's going to come out of. But, but, but he, we know he's going to come – I guess what uh, you have to do and I think this is what – we have to watch out for the signposts and I think that's really important. It does specifically and clearly state that there will be a peace treaty that there will be the temple will be rebuilt and that they will resume the sacrifice so i guess following the signpost to see if these events will occur before the abomination of desolation before the antichrist appears this and is the a good prophet book with the 14 so signs the 14 signs so you have to return. kind of keep an eye on what's happening in the, on the world stage well, one thing we do know i if i if i'm correct is that the antichrist will convince the Christians, that he is the Messiah. He will convince the Jews that he is the Messiah. He That's will convince correct. the Muslims that he is the is it the 12th Imam. He will convince all these different religious groups. He will convince the, the Buddhists that he is the compassionate Buddha. So this, to me, it doesn't sound like he's going to be a politician. He's going to be a, some a religious sort of a spiritual figure. figure. If a he's spiritual. able to convince everybody that he is the, the – whatever their Messiah is, that he's that person. Yeah, Eric Phelps calls it the Babylonian Messiah right. is, going to, is going to rise. But also isn't there a melding of religion and government now? Isn't it all sort of becoming one? I mean there seems to be a following, falling away from the, the um, Holy Roman Empire church. You know, I mean they're all being exposed now. 
So are they changing and transmogrifying into a whole new religion, which is is like a a government world religion mixed together? I mean, I'm wondering if that's happening. So could it be a political leader or even a spiritual leader that is a political leader at the same time? Right. Is that possible? Certainly. Anything's possible, I guess, at this point. So how far... Uh, I mean, do you believe that the Antichrist is now, you know, walking this earth and he's he's just yet to step forward and, and proclaim himself? Oh, I believe he's on the planet sure. now. Yeah, somewhere. So how close then are we to the uh, the beginning of the tribulation? Well, that's a really good question. Yeah. I don't think you can, you know, I don't think you can uh, – the prophecy wasn't designed to give us the ability to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. If if the master knew when the thief was going to arrive, he wouldn't stay up and, and, uh, and yeah. remain uh, yeah. awake and alert. So we're not given the exact times. But you can see – Christ said you can read the signs of the sky in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. red sky at night, sailor take light, take uh, – right? But uh, how, do, how is it you don't understand? Understand the signs of the times. You can see the movements of the signs of the times and the necessary things in order for this to take place. And we are very, very close. It may be 20. Remember, we're given 6,000 years. Mankind was given 6,000 years. After 6,000 years, uh, once you get into the time of the end, as statistics doing a, a two-tail test, you're looking at 10, 1% of 6,000 is 60 years. It could be the next 30 years, 40 years. It could be 20 years. We don't know, but it's not far away. This is to culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. Explain what that, that is. I mean, it, it's, yeah. that's, Armageddon the kings of the earth. Is, is an actual valley uh, in, in Israel, but this is not to be a battle. This is to be a gathering place, from what I understand. It's, there's no Battle of Armageddon. It's a gathering in Armageddon, well, but what, what is that, what is to take place during this Battle of Armageddon? Go ahead. Well, I think... Basically, that battle is all the armies of the world will get together, and they're going to be battling Christ. So it'll be I mean, Christ and his angels. That's right. And they're going to, of course, be uh, made to believe that they're aliens, perhaps. That's an interesting you know, uh, I mean, I've an interesting theory. Explain that. that. Explain that. I mean, if you wanted people to get together and fight, wouldn't you create an alien invasion? Isn't that what everyone's always talking about? to not have people really think about what's really happening. You give them a diversion. So get them thinking about aliens. Do the aliens really exist? So in other words, Christ and his army of angels, mm-hmm. they'll be, will be led to believe that those are aliens invading. Possibly. Right. Well, the Bible Possibly. says the kings of the earth are sure. being gathered to, together at the Battle of Armageddon to go to war with Christ yeah. and his angels at his mm-hmm. coming. So mankind will be led to believe mm-hmm. that Christ is an alien, exactly. an enemy alien coming to take sure. over the world. And so the aliens that we're seeing are the setup to get mankind ready to believe that Christ is the enemy alien. You know, I'm going to go back and uh, read uh, parts of the Bible with a, a whole new perspective. The lost and found tribes of Israel. We're all the, the lost tribes of Israel. That's my takeaway from this. This is yeah, fascinating. Nelson Thal, thank you. Jane Steele, thank you. Been a real pleasure. It's Thanks very real- much. 
It's been great. Thank you. Uh, back next week, James Eugenio joins me for uh, episode four in our ongoing series on JFK. Tim Spreen, thanks for production. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.